Good morning. I'm excited to be here with you today. Let's begin our worship together in prayer. God, as we dive into your scriptures, as we dive into your word, may our hearts be moved by your teachings so that the things that are important to you become important to us. Amen. This is a big weekend for a lot of families in our church because this is the first weekend of summer, meaning there is no more homework. And I guarantee you there are more parents doing a victory dance over this than there are kids. <laughs> There's also people celebrating graduations. High school graduations happened this week. We celebrate with you today. What an accomplishment. You should be proud. It's also a big Sunday because it is move up Sunday for our kiddos, which means they are moving from one classroom up to another one with new teachers, a new classroom, a new way of doing things, which is a big deal for our kids because change can be exciting, but it, it isn't always easy, is it? <laughs> it takes some getting used to. We find this in Jesus' ministry as well. We see Jesus sit down and teach his audience about a new way of living, a different way of living, a life-altering way of living. And I'm sure it was a lot to take in. I am referring to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. You find it in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. If you were to go to Israel today, this would be the view you would have from the traditional site where they say Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. If you are lucky enough to go on the tour with the church next year, this is one of your stops. You're overlooking the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And one could argue that Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, his collection of teachings, is probably his most famous. In fact, some people walk around quoting it, and they have no idea they're doing it. For instance, I remember having a job at a retail store in college, and they had a tendency to give us this pep talk before the doors opened to the customers. And I remember the store manager saying, now remember, go the extra mile with your customer today. Do you know where that comes from? That comes from the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus spoke about a common event that occurred where Roman soldiers would ask a civilian to help carry the heavy equipment for about a mile, and then after a mile, they were free to go. And Jesus tells his audience, don't just go one mile, go two miles to show your servant's heart. Or what about this one? Have you ever heard someone speak so highly of another person that they call them the salt of the earth? Oh, she's just the salt of the earth, isn't she? That comes from the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus calls us the salt of the earth, the light of the world. In fact, there are so many famous teachings in this sermon. There's the Lord's Prayer, which you have proven, many of you have memorized. There is the discussion of loving your enemies and not just your neighbors. There's even the golden rule in the Sermon on the Mount. Everybody knows the golden rule, right? Which is, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Now, I shouldn't say everybody. Case in point. A few years ago, my husband and I and my four kids after church, we went to lunch with my parents. And my dad asked my younger daughter, she was about five at the time, what did you learn in Sunday school today? She said, oh, I learned all about the golden rule. He said, well, that's great, honey. What's the golden rule? 
And she thought for a minute and she said, do it to them before they do it to you. <laughs> True story. That's what she said. <laughs> Don't worry though. We keep bringing her back to Sunday school. She's going to be okay. She's going to be okay. She'll figure it out. Jesus closes his sermon with another famous story, a story that's popular in Sunday school because we love the visual the kids get. Jesus closes his sermon by talking about the wise man who builds his house upon the rock versus the foolish man who builds his house in the sand. Jesus says the storm will come to both houses, but when the winds blow and the storm comes, the house upon the rock will stay strong. And Jesus compares his listeners, those who listen to his teachings of the Sermon on the Mount, and live it out like the wise man who builds his house on the rock. So clearly there are way too many things for us to talk about in one Sunday for us to discuss from the Sermon on the Mount. So I'm not even going to try. But I am going to encourage you to take some time this week to read it in its entirety, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, because Jesus is building upon ideas and reaching a beautiful conclusion that you might miss out on if you don't read it as a whole. But today we're going to do something different. We're going to talk about three main themes that are in this sermon. And to better understand it, we need to know who Jesus' audience was for the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 says that Jesus acknowledges a large crowd that's coming, and he moves to a mountainside to sit down, and his disciples follow him there, and he begins to teach them, which shows us that Jesus' primary audience is his disciples. His secondary audience are the crowds, including scribes and Pharisees. We know this because he points them out often in the sermon. And what this shows us is this. These expectations he's about to lay out, this way of living, it's for people who want to follow Jesus. So what does the Sermon on the Mount teach us? Well, the first thing we're going to talk about is the fact that being a follower of Jesus calls for a change of heart, not a change in law. He is quick to point out that he has not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. And then he goes on to use a specific law as an example. It's a law the audience would have been very familiar with. It's one of the Ten Commandments. I find it pretty interesting which law he chooses to talk about. If you have ever tried to teach the Ten Commandments to kids, you'll notice they do something. They make a list. There's two lists. There's a list of the laws they're really good at and they don't need to worry about. Check. Doing it. And then there's the list that they need to work on, right? I remember doing this as a kid, and if I was being honest, I still do it today. And the first law on their list of the things they do well is they don't murder people. Yeah. <laughs> Check. I'm good at that one. Now, obeying my parents, I might need to work on that one. But I don't murder people. I'm good to go. Check. Moving on. It's interesting that this is the law that Jesus decides to bring up. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with a brother or a sister will be liable to judgment. Jesus is saying, it's not that simple. It's not just something you check off your list. There's more to it than that. Murder, it begins in the heart. 
How many of you are walking around with anger towards a brother or a sister? Anger that can turn into contempt, which means you think they are less valuable than you are. Yeah, it's not as simple as a checking off the list. There's more to it than that. Which leads to our second point, that being a follower of Jesus calls for self-reflection. It's not enough to do the right thing. Jesus explains we must do the right things for the right reasons. He moves on in his discussion in chapter 6, and he talks about three acts of righteousness, three things he wants us to do. He talks about giving and praying and fasting. But he opens the conversation this way. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Are you doing the right things for the wrong reasons? Are you doing it to receive praise from other people? Again, building yourself up, making you more important than the others around you? Because if you are, you're missing the mark, man. Which leads to our next point. Being a follower of Jesus calls for humility. And I refer you to Matthew chapter 7, verses 3 through 5. This is when Jesus talks about how we judge one another. And he gets pretty dramatic here on purpose. He uses hyperbole. And he says, here you are, worried about this speck of sawdust in somebody's eye, and you've got a log sticking out of your own eye. First, you should take the log out of your own eye before you start worrying about the speck in somebody else's eye. As my grandmother says, it sounds like you need a huge heaping of humility. Now, sometimes humility can get a bad rap because I think people align humility with shame. But I would argue that those are two very different things. Shame is when you think you've done something so wrong or that there's there's some big flaw in you that you're incapable of being loved, that you don't deserve to be loved. Shame can be very isolating It isolates you from the people around you, and it isolates you from your God. You become blind to the sacred spaces in front of you where God is at work, and you could be a part of it, but you're too busy pulling away. No, humility is very different. In fact, its result is quite the opposite. Humility is when you recognize the own brokenness in yourself, enough so that you allow the brokenness in other people so that the broken don't become despised and cast aside and marginalized. Humility acknowledges that we don't have all the answers. And the more room we leave for God in our lives, the better we're going to be. Because God's way is far greater than anything we could come up with on our own, right? I had a friend call me from out of the blue. I hadn't talked to her in five or six years. She's a social worker who works here locally in Citrus Heights. She called to let me know that they were running out of foster parents, that there are too many kids coming into the system in Sacramento, and they don't know where to put them. She called and she said, Rachel, I'm just calling everyone I know. Do you know of anyone who might be interested in being a foster parent? And she said, well, let me correct myself, not anyone. Do you know anyone who would want to do it for the right reasons? I said, you know what, I've got this church family I could ask. She said, great, you talk to them and get back to me. Let me know what they say, and we hung up. 
And I realized after we hung up, I wonder if she thinks I meant like a single unit family with a dog and a cat and a house, when what I meant was my church family, all of us here, who come from all different walks of life with a different story to tell. But we're a family because we come here to worship a great God with great love. And so, could we become foster parents for the right reasons? I think so. It wouldn't be because we think we're perfect parents and that we have all the answers. It would be because of this, that we know God is with those kids. Amen? God hears their prayers. The Sermon on the Mount makes that very clear. And where God is, is where I want to be. Every child deserves a safe place to grow up with food and clothing and shelter. But they need more than that, don't they? Not only can you pack them a lunch with healthy foods in it, but you can slip in those love notes, those midday messages. Do you remember getting those? I used to love getting those. And they need those midday messages to know that they are treasured and worthy of love, that there is hope for their future, because there is no situation that God can't reach in and alter and heal. Amen? Our church family lives out the Sermon on the Mount all the time. I see it all the time. And it's not in flashy displays for everyone to see. It's in quiet obediences that Jesus speaks of. One of my most favorite stories now, a recent example of this, has to do with our youth group. My oldest son just finished his first year in high school. So he was old enough to go on the mission trip to Mexico with the youth group over spring break. He was so excited to go, and I was excited for him because I knew that God was going to do great things that week, and he would get to be a part of it. And after the week was over and all the families are waiting in the parking lot for the school, you know, the bus to come up, you know, they open the doors, and out they come all in one piece still. We give him a big hug. We're so excited to see him. But we quickly notice that he's, he's carrying something with him. And it's a rather large size and awkward, and he's not as much carrying it as, as he's draping his arm over it like it's his friend. And I say, what you got there, kid? He said, oh, this? This is my mistake. I brought it home. I want to hang it up in my, on my wall in my room. I said, what? <laughs> Which I'm used to saying. <laughs> You're going to have to keep saying more things here. I don't understand. He said, yeah, part of my job in Mexico was to work on the flooring in this room. There he is working over there with Scott Battenfield, helping out. And he told me part of my job was to measure the floor and to cut it out. And well, I measured wrong. And I cut it wrong. And this is the piece that we couldn't use. And I brought it home, it's my mistake, and I want to hang it up on my wall in my room. Upon closer inspection, I started to understand why he treasured it so much. He was kind enough to let me borrow it this morning, so I have it here. You see, his teammates signed it. And the leaders of our church who went down with him, 
Even Pastor Javier, the pastor down in Mexico, he signed this piece of flooring. And the messages say things like this. They say, not all mistakes are bad. Mistakes are how we learn. Measure twice, cut once. <laughs> Good advice. <laughs> Pastor Javier says, thank you for helping us. God bless you. And when I look at these messages, I see no room for shame in these messages. I only see messages of humility, of connection, of grace, and love. And in a world where our youth are told to collect as many trophies as they can, because it's competitive out there, do you know how much pressure our kids are under to have a good resume, a good application to get into college? It's insane. And in a world like this, they need the voice of the church to remind them that your trophies are well and good, and we praise you in your victories, but you've got to leave room on your walls for your mistakes too, amen? Or you'll start getting tricked into believing that God's presence is only in your successes. So the question I ask you today is this. Have you left room on your walls to display your mistakes? Has your heart been changed? Have you done enough self-reflection to know that we walk humbly in this life, knowing full well that God's love can manifest not only in our accomplishments, but in our failures too? Are we able to come before God with our broken pieces and know that and trust that God can use them for good? I hope we do. I pray that we do. Because this way of life that Jesus teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount, it may not be the easiest, but it sure is worth it. Amen? Let's bow our heads together in our closing prayer. Heavenly Father, our hearts are overcome by your teachings. And we pray that our lives are saturated in these quiet obediences that Jesus speaks of. And as we prepare our hearts to partake in communion, we are reminded that it's not a reward for the great, but it's a table set for those who are hungry and thirsty for more of you, for more of your love, and for more of your grace. And for all of these gifts, we are so very grateful. Amen. Amen.